The Vincast, a podcast all about wine, wine culture, and wine people, is proudly supported by the Venus app for iPhone, which recognizes any wine with just the snap of a photo. It is a fantastic piece of technology you can use with something that you basically carry around in your pocket, and you can use it to actually help you remember wines you've enjoyed. Now, I'm sure you've been in a situation like I have uh, where you are out at a bar or a restaurant, you really enjoy wine that you've um, you've been drinking, but um, you want to buy it in retail the next day and you can't remember what it was. So all you need to do is just take a photo of that label with the Venus app and it will not only recognize it, but you can also uh, rate and review it and you can find out what other people have liked as well. You can use it to find out where you might be able to buy that wine and also what you might be expected to pay. So all you need to do is go to www.getvenus.com forward slash vincast, download the app, start snapping away and follow lots of other wine lovers like yourself. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Kersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I hope you have been enjoying some of the myriad uh, wine events, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney of late, um, whether you got out to Riesling Down Under or some of Riesling. Um, I, I, I hope you got out and tasted some wines and met some great winemakers and uh and there doesn't seem to be any signs of slowing down. Uh, pretty soon it's going to be the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival and there's going to be a return to Tewa and lots of other wine events and also great food events as well. Um, Highway One Street Party is going to be fantastic. So um, I suggest going to um, What's Up Buttercup, um, the website where you can find out uh, all the wine food events in Melbourne and Sydney and also um, you'll be able to find some links to some of the big uh, events and festivals. Um for this week's episode, um, I just have to someone to thank Ed Marison, uh, who actually got me in contact with my guest. And I also wanted to thank, um, Pete from Pikes who helped me get Tom Barry. Um, so both of those Riesling guests were obviously, uh, in relation to the Riesling down under tasting, which was in Melbourne. Now, you may hear, um, it, it sounds a little bit different this week because, uh, and unless you didn't see it on social media or on Instagram, um, I actually um, bought myself a, a digital um, portable recorder and a, a field mic sort of set up so I can now record uh, remotely. So you'll hear a little bit of ambient noise because uh, I recorded it in a park just outside uh, Melbourne's central business district. Um, the guest I have was, of course, down for the Riesling Down Under, and he is visiting from Germany. And it's actually one of the people I've worked vintage with in 2012. Uh, his name is Johannes Hasselbach, and he is from Weingut Gundelok uh, in the Rhein-Hessen region. Uh, of course, they're very, very famous for their Riesling wines, uh, as well as um, being just lovely people. Um, Johannes uh, took over from his father in 2010, uh, running the estate himself, um, and he um, has a really fantastic story uh, that he shared on the podcast. So I do hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, of course, uh, go to interpretwino.com. Um, you'll be able to find um, all of the links uh, with um, social media, that kind of thing. Um, please do let Johannes and I know if you did enjoy the episode. Um, but I will talk to you on the other side. Johannes, welcome back to Australia. Thank you for uh, making some time in your very, very busy schedule to uh, to sit down with me. Um, when was the last time you were in Australia? 
just about right three years ago, I think, for the Riesling Down Under tasting last last episode. Okay. Um, and is it always sort of strange for you to be here in what would be winter in Germany? And we have, I mean, today is a beautifully warm or close to hot day. Is it a bit strange for you being here at this time of year? It's a little bit strange, but it's also a very nice occasion to come here right from the German winter. You can hear from my voice a little bit that my uh, kids gave me as a farewell present the flu at the airport. So I'm carrying that around with me, but the weather here helps to relax a little bit and get ready for the next uh, next uh, episode of German winter back home. Yeah, I mean, I, I know when I was traveling um, and I'd be going from one hemisphere to another, my body would be saying, what are you doing? Like, this is this is not right. This is not right. And I would always, first sort of maybe a month after I, I arrived, I would be uh, feeling very sick. But um, I, I know that you're here as part of um, all of the Riesling um, festivities. Um, and, you know, um, I'm sure it's a pretty hectic schedule. Um, but obviously there's a lot of energy around Riesling, so I'm, I'm sure that it's great for you to come down, you know, the other side of the world to find out that there's so much interest in Riesling. Do you, uh, do you enjoy coming out to Australia? Oh yeah, it's, I always like, like to come, be here. I've been here now for three or four times, part of it, uh, working reasons. Sometimes I came private and as you said, it's quite stressful to, to go back after so, uh, a trip like this and I need like two weeks to recover. But at the same time, you get so many great experience, especially on an event like this. You you get to taste so many great wines from uh, all around the world, mainly Riesling uh, this time. And you get so many great ideas. You learn so much stuff and you, you yeah, it just opens your mind for the whole world of, of wine and Riesling especially. And just gets you motivated when you go back home and go back to my family winery. It's just like, yeah, keeps me going on and, and, and trying to get better every time. Now, I um, have had, obviously, the good fortune of um, being very, very familiar with uh, with your family and with your winery because um, I worked vintage with you in 2012, which was a fantastic experience. But um, tell me a little bit about uh, Gundelok, um, about your particular part of the, the Rheinhessen and, um, and, and how the winery was created. Yeah, so actually, my winery is for German relations quite young. We are just 125 years old, which makes us one of the startup companies in German winemaking. Um, but uh, we are located in a very uh, unique setting. It's actually part of the biggest growing region in Germany, which is called Rheinhessen. And our small sub-region, which just consists of a pretty much five kilometer long stretch along the river Rhine, is called the Red Hill, or in German, Der Rote Hang. And it gets its name from a very unique soil, which is normally hidden deep down under the ground. And just where the Rhine Valley breaks off and we have the steep slopes right next to the river, it tilts upwards and it hits the ground. And uh, it's a kind of red slate, which is from 290 million years ago. It's uh, from Permian times. And it's basically just compressed clay for 290 million years. And then it takes off. Uh, uh, up a uh, slaty appearance so if you look at it it's like really chunks of slate lying around in the vineyards and um, it gives the wines a, a very it, a special um, style you you will always recognize wines that are from the red slate soil so this is our our potential and also our obligation to create wines that where we want to make every bottle tasting of this small piece of land that we are growing on so it's actually quite small growing region with just a couple of producers 
but it's at the moment it's a very dynamic area so lots of young guys taking over the wineries and um, starting to move forward maybe it was a little bit dormant during the last years when the older generation was settled but now you can really feel a lot of energy going on in our area where completely unknown wineries are doing really really great stuff and i think that will be yeah they have a good um, looking uh, into the future good time ahead of us so um your 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 mother's family were the owners yes. of 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 the vineyard yeah. uh, and of the the winery so it was i think it was your great grandfather or great great grandfather who sort of established and i think if i remember correctly it was sort of passed down through the the daughters yeah this is uh, part of our family tradition that um it's always passed over by the female side so we we are still the same family also our names change every generation i already have two girls and i think we're going to stop there so we have will have another uh, change of names coming up uh, actually the winery was founded by my great 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 grandfather so i'm the sixth generation now and he actually was a, a banker he didn't have much to do uh, with winemaking for a start but he was very uh yeah he he enjoyed life he he traveled a lot he tasted wines from 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 many different regions where was he from originally uh from he was basically from a village a little bit down south from us and his he was a banker his his bank house was located in Mainz which is uh, like a uh, 10 kilometers away and every morning he started walk down uh, walk up to his his house even though he he had uh, chauffeurs and everything he he didn't need but he wanted to to look at nature he was a very close to nature guy and so every morning he traveled, uh, he, he was walking along the, the River Rhine and saw the different vineyard sites. So he got quite an understanding of which settings are better for, for, for grape growing. He was, a, he was a big wine fan, not by his profession, but he liked to drink wine. And so when he, when he came, when he got older, he wanted to, yeah, he got bored by his job probably. So he decided to sell his bank house. How can you possibly get bored of banking? I don't know. Like I sometimes, I think it would be a good idea if he kept his bank house because he might have had a, uh, an easier life. But uh, on the other hand, like I think, he just lots of people are, are very passionate about winemaking, and you see a lot of architects in in California um, selling, like stopping their their job and, and starting to to look at winemaking. This is well, that's certainly the history in Australia. Uh, you know, in like the seventies and eighties, there were what we call hobby farmers who yeah. maybe were living in Melbourne. Um, or even Adelaide, and they bought some land just for the weekend and decided, oh, I might plant a, plant a vineyard, and then became just amazing winemakers, like doctors and lawyers, even yeah. teachers. That, that would really was one of the things that really caught me on, on making the decision to take over my family business was actually when I was here in Australia and uh, working with Jim Barry's, which was pre- pretty much my first experience uh, into winemaking. I, Basically, I, I found my passion for winemaking the, the farthest away from my own estate as I could possibly go. And because for me in Germany was always like it was cold, it was uh, stressy, it was dirty because like German German uh, harvest seasons can be quite ugly because it's raining a lot, it's getting cold. And then I come here to Australia and, I, and I, you have nice warm weather, everybody has having a beer uh, after work and you have a guitar standing around somewhere. So it was really like a like a relaxed uh, approach to winemaking and that changed my mind a little bit and that actually uh, 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 started to 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 uh, create something like a hunger where i wanted to go out and and meet people and and travel the world as well and and uh, get ideas about winemaking it was never about like learning technical stuff the technical side of winemaking is actually 
pretty not not easy but it's like everybody can handle uh, technical knowledge but the, the really motivating part of, of winemaking for me is understanding people what drives them to make wine and how as a person you can influence your winemaking because for me wine is a is extremely personal product which human plays a quite important role on so um, this is something that I'm really going after I did a, like after I went to Australia I, I worked in lots of different wine growing regions around the world uh, I took a year off uh, after I finished my actually accounting studies so I, I wanted to go in the direction of my of, of my great 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 grandfather but just seeing how, how different people see winemaking what they what motivates them to make wines and how they can express themselves in a wine just like was an amazing start of a journey for me which I'm like it's it was a starting point for for what I'm doing now and it's just motivating even like trips we are taking now out of German winter going into the summer of Australia and meeting winemakers from all different countries uh, and and just see what they do with a piece of land and how they interpret this piece of land and how they let it shine in a, in a bottle uh, it's just an amazing thing so this is what really keeps feeding the interest and trying to 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 get more uh, adventurous every year so i um when i uh when i worked vintage with you i had the uh, the amazing uh, opportunity to actually stay in your your bedroom when you were growing up um and i i saw like uh posters on the wall for like skateboarding and snowboarding and stuff like that and i kind of got the impression that when you were younger um, you were kind of into the more extreme side of things. And you were just telling me before that when you get back to, to Europe, you're going to just have a little bit of a ski trip before the Pro Wine Fair. Um, what was it like growing up um, with the family sort of making the wines? And, and did you, early on, was there kind of like a rebellious nature that you sort of wanted to do your own thing? Never. I was never rebellious. No, just kidding. And actually, um, growing up in a winemaking family, was really at the beginning I just saw the hard work so we are, we are kind of sad in our family that my sister is going to take over the winery and I, I do something else because I was looking for my own freedom outside of the winery but then like in, uh, it's good to have a life plan but most of the time it doesn't work so uh, so, so much for, for life planning um, after I I finished my, my accountant studies at university I, I came home because I uh, I wanted to to see like what our family I couldn't really separate myself from the from the winery so I I started uh, because I was quite finished uh, quite early finished with university I started uh, to plan for a one year travel around the world and visiting different wineries because I wanted before I start my professional life get some experience in and see the world and that's when I started to because I needed to pay for my for my travels as well I, I decided to work in different wineries and this is when I the first experience that I got with Chimberry I, I worked in uh, New Zealand I worked in Australia again and I worked in Santiago de Chile and I worked in New Zealand uh, it just saw that it's actually like the, the there can be so much passion for wine and I started to feel this passion in myself and so I got home and uh, when I got home my sister who was actually making the wines at our estate at this time she decided to fall in love with an Austrian winemaker so she's now very happily making wines in Austria pretty good wines actually at the Jurchich estate in the Kamtal area and then suddenly I was there we had no winemaker my father unfortunately um, got ill it was vintage 2010 and then I was in a situation where 
I felt the obligation to continue what my parents have been doing for the last uh, 30 years. But now, year by year, uh, the obligation that I feel is getting smaller, but the passion that is coming in is, is much more important. So every year, I think winemaking, when you start, and even if you don't have an education as a winemaker, is, is quite a complex thing. And lots of, of different stuff that you just don't understand uh, is just like, yeah, it was too much at the beginning. But now every year you, you learn so much more and you understand much more what what really is influencing your wine. So that really now is raising the, the passion for winemaking every year. So it's quite, uh, yeah, quite cool uh, process that we see in our winery now because even my also my parents, which have been kind of nervous when, this, when everything happened, uh, they now see that actually also a different approach to winemaking can produce some great uh, results and we are... We are quite, quite, quite happy right now how, how things are improving in the winery. But yeah, at the beginning it was uh, like you just saw the work you, uh, because winemaking is quite labor intensive. You don't have, you're working with nature, you're, you're farmers, but also you're businessmen. And, and so the whole week your vineyards are waiting for you. You go out and even on the weekends and then on, sometimes again on the weekends you, you need to see customers because that's when they have free time. So as I, as young a uh, young child at home I just saw the work but now um, when you see like why my parents have been doing it now the understanding is much greater for that and I hope my par- my kids will understand when they grow up how it is when you were younger did you drink much wine did you would you have any interest in wine or were you mostly a beer drinker mm, when we, we have been actually quite early approached to wine in our family as in every wine winery uh, family there's wine on the table at every dinner every lunch not breakfast but all the other meals we have, we, we have with wine and so we got quite an early um, early exposure to wine and also to very good wines mostly from other German Riesling producers and um, there was a time where it was pretty much on beer for some time. There was more the re- rebellious skateboarding time. Did your friends, when you were young, drink wine at all? My friends? Yeah. Um, no, they, I was not, like, I, because I didn't go to winemaking school, I didn't have that networks of friends that were always drinking wine. I'm, I'm, I really lack this part of my wine life a little bit, which is kind of sad, but I'm trying very hard. At the moment, I'm, I'm absolutely, like, tasting every... I try to taste a different wine every second day, maybe, and so... I am, um, but the experience of appreciating and, and tasting wine when you know what you are doing, this is quite an important important time. It really opens your mind for for all what's out there. What what made you decide to sort of um, just get a job working vintage in in the Clare Valley? Just kind of say, oh well, I, you know, I know enough about wine. My my family makes wine in in Germany, so oh, you know that that's that's a job I could probably easily get using connections. No, it was really. Because I was, as I said, I was studying accounting and my first experience with Jamberry in, in winemaking was halfway through my studies where I took a short break. And it was really about, because we had this really traditional estate at home, um, I wanted to, to find the passion in me. I, maybe I, I, I knew that it was somewhere, but I just didn't understand it. And I wanted to see how it's basically done at, at the other side of the world. So. We, uh, well, in terms of places you've made wine, you've certainly picked some extreme places. Yeah, I didn't want to travel around Europe. I wanted always to, to get to use a chance as well to see a little bit of the world and, 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 and meet other people. Because for me, at this time, uh, Germany or, or Europe was, was just too, too, 
yeah, I don't know, too too uh, too much uh, work orientated, too much. Uh, how do you call it? Like typical typical German, uh, like uh, efficiency and precision. Thank you very much, James. Yeah, that's what I wanted to see. Uh, that's what I knew from home. I wanted to see another side of the wine world. I wanted wanted to see like the more emotional approach to winemaking. I thought slightly more dynamic. Yeah, dynamic and and also young people. Like I know that. When I was young, I always my my parents took me along to to wine tastings, and I got the chance to go to the United States, for example, when I was quite young. And I always like I, in Germany when I went to wine tasting with my parents, the people were like seventy, or at, le at least for me they looked like they were at least seventy. Um, and then I go to a, a wine tasting in New, uh, in in California, and all of a sudden, like young guys in board shorts and curly hair walk in and they're absolutely into winemaking and and, and and as a as a skateboarding snowboarding enthusiast you kind of went hey those guys are cool yeah that's what i what i thought <laughs> and actually i like i i saw that they're like out there there are people of my age uh, that are really into wine and and so when it came to the decision to um where i said i want to do something with wine before i go completely different ways and i've never been to australia at this time But luckily, my parents had quite a good connection over the f starting years of the um, Franklin Estate Riesling Taste, International Riesling Tasting. We had some connection to different parts, and then I, um, I basically looked at the map of Australia and uh, looked which ar which area looked nice for me, where like I have the proximity to the ocean and uh, proximity to to big city. And then I asked my parents, ah, "Do you know anybody around this area?" And then they said, "Yeah, we we have been at the Jimberry Winery. It's actually quite cool people." And then I said, yeah, why not? And then I wrote a message if I can come over and, and help for vintage. And that's how it worked. And it wasn't necessarily like, oh, oh where's great for Riesling in Australia? Oh, the Clare Valley, I'll go there. Um, that was accidental? For me, it was accidental. Of course, my parents had a, had a good idea of where great Rieslings in Australia are produced. And when I came here and uh, when I talked to the people and I visited Jeffrey Crossett and uh, Stephanie at Mount Horrocks, I actually got an understanding that I landed accidentally in the capital of uh, Riesling uh, for uh, Australia. Also, I, I was a little bit disappointed when I uh, drove over to Watervale, I think, and I saw the, the sign, Welcome to the home of Riesling. And as a guy from Rheinhessen area, which is, of course, the home of the Riesling, I was a little bit <laughs> <laughs> disappointed. Um, and you, so you finished your studies and then you, you made this big trip And how long were you away for? Uh, for one week. Uh, sorry, yeah, one year. So, you, so, so two consecutive vintages, or, or yeah. did you work vintage? Were you able to work vintages in a couple of different places um, in the same year? I started working vintage in Canada, which uh, was more or less an excuse for go skiing and to uh, like tell my parents that actually. Do that was in the Okanagan Valley. Okanagan Valley, actually, uh, like one of the really big producers. I didn't necessarily look for to find an estate which is the exact copy of our estate somewhere else i was looking for or i want to get as much experience in different places in so the place in canada uh jackson Driggs winery was actually the biggest uh producer of wine in, in the whole in whole canada but still i met so many cool people from australia new zealand canada we have been pushed together like all the interns were living in one house uh in the vineyards and so there were a lot of wine parties at night I tell you and I think at the job was really cool because I, I got all the technical toys that a winemaker can dream of 
But the more important for me was then after we finished work at night, sit at, sit in our house. Outside it was snowing in the middle of the vintage and we had a couple of really good bottles of wine and started discussions. It was really an amazing experience. And then I continued on to um, the Colchagua Valley close to Santiago de Chile and worked the vintage over there, which was also di completely different, like no technical toys at, at all. They even had pumps that you needed to, uh, like that, electric pumps but also when they broke down you they brought in pumps which you have to uh, do by hand which was really <laughs> really cool to see um, that was a great experience as well no Riesling in there but just like uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and um, like mostly reds I, when I visited Chile I think maybe there was one winery I went to that had that was actually pretty good Riesling um, what was it called uh, Casa Marin I think yeah, it was quite good. Okay. No, at this time when I was there, like I have been told that there's no Riesling in uh, Chile, but maybe they were wrong. But <laughs> anyways, and then I can continue on to um, to Australia to visit, uh, just like not really working, but I visited a couple of wineries like Franklin Estate and in the Margaret River region. And then I continued on to New Zealand and um, basically finished up with vintage over there and uh, at uh, Martin Moore Vineyards which was a little bit of Riesling but mainly Pinot Noir mm. but also it was all about the people that you meet and in Martin Moore there was, were like 20 wineries like all like pretty much like European style kind of small and uh, and they all had overseas visitors which helped for vintage and the, in the whole village there was one bar so same story again all the winemakers met at the bar after work and there was a lot of cool cool times happening like not so much in the really stressful parts, but uh, before and after was a really great atmosphere, and I learned so much about wine, just talking to different people, and also I learned lots about like what I want to see in my wineries, like a more laid-back approach to winemaking. Of course, you're not allowed to make any mistakes, uh, but still, I think you need in your mind you need you need some relaxation, and you need a, a like a more not so tough approach on winemaking to. To make it like if you if you want it to be your product, it has to fit how you, how you see things as well. So, so so less control but maintaining the observation to make sure everything yeah. is 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 going to be okay. Yeah, like the the like if you if I want to describe my my philosophy as a winemaker, uh, I'm a 99% vineyard worker because we are no magicians. We don't have any miracle powders which can increase quality. The time we we cut off the grapes from from the plant. This is the most crucial part of it. And after that, I just, I want to create circumstances which allow me to do, be lazy in the cellar. So, because for me, the vineyards is, is the magic place, not, not the winemaker is the magic man. Uh, I want to, to work very hard in my vineyards to create the best grapes that I ever can. That And they have everything in there. They, they transport the soil, the piece of land. And after that, in the cellar, I just want to be as restrictive as possible to make sure that I don't interact too much with the wine, because as a as a winemaker, it's like it's like an orchestra. You have you have lots of different um, instruments in your head, and and all the instruments can be much louder than you actually your vineyard. And so for me, it's very important how I like I can minimize my influence and and be as yeah nature connected as possible to actually make wines that that speak of our piece of land which for me is is a magical place
So after you returned back from your trip overseas, were you 100% in the, in the, in the vineyards and the cellars and working with, with your father? If I started right away, yeah. bit by bit I started. I, I, I did some, um, like, as I said, it was like an orientating phase. And at first my, my sister was still there making our wine. So I, I just did a li little bit more adventures in, in, in other side. I worked as a paramedic for some time and stuff. But um, bit by bit, I got drawn into, into the family business. For me, like 2010 was the vintage when it happened because um, that's when my father uh, unfortunately got ill. He now is perfectly recovered. But it gave me the chance to, to enter the winery and start to work. But of course, I started still with the old crew that was working in, in our cellars that have been taught by my parents uh, 30 years like what he wants to do. And then all, all of a sudden... I come back and I don't have like completely different viewpoints. It's more like a small evolution rather than a revolution what we are doing right now in the cellar or in the vineyards. But still it's it's something that people have to understand and they have to feel the same motivation what we are doing. So every year we we get a little bit more adventurous. We we, we get we take a little bit more risks every year. But for me it also raises the personality of our wines during the last years what were some of the f the first things you started to kind of just evolve um you know did you did you think that you would start in the the vineyards uh, i definitely started in the vineyards to um with my with my work so we we looked at at the vineyard sites and bit by bit trying to change the way how we treat our vineyard sites and um to understand a little bit more what I'm talking about, maybe you have to understand our region as well. So we are um, located on, on very steep slopes, the only really steep slopes um, in, in the Rheinhessen area. Rheinhessen is not necessarily known for having steep slope vineyard sites. And also we have a very special kind of soil, the red slate, which is on one hand it's a stone, but on the other hand it's a very soft stone that you um, that is in pretty big danger from eroding. And so uh, we are some, somehow in a, in a kind of deadly uh, combination, if you want to put this, or, or to say not the easiest uh, situation for winemaking, because we, we are having the proximity of the river. We have a kind, we have a lot of humidity in the in the vineyards, but also um, uh, we have the the uh, big danger of eroding our vineyard sites. So it's bit by bit we, we are, you have to find ways how you can uh, inc yeah get get better in the vineyards and and. Uh, apply more uh, natural connected uh, ways to to tra to train your your vineyards and um, so this is where we started and then of course I, I took the grapes brought them into the cellar and I wanted to find maize how I can be actually more yeah um, restrictive in the cellar and in a winery where the people that have been working always knew how, what they wanted to do uh, uh, we actually wanted to take more risks in the cellar. It was was quite hard to 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 do this, but when we started to see the results and uh, and how it actually can can uh, in, enhance the the way, especially how the dry wines are tasting, um, the people start to understand. And now we we actually get yeah, everybody has fun trying out new stuff each year and get a little bit more adventurous. So you guys are members of the the, the group of uh, wineries in Germany, the VDP. Please don't make me pronounce the full, <laughs> the full one. But this is is it still one hundred members? Uh, two hundred. 
There's 200. 200, there. yeah. Ooh, good. Um, 200 out of, uh, of 20,000 uh, wine growing uh, families in Germany are members of the VDP. And and the, the sort of the, the system of uh, classifying quality with the VDP is a little bit different to if if people are familiar with the way that quality is is um, categorized in Germany, uh, it's a little bit different. It's it's based on must weight, but with VDP. There's, there's another kind of um, style of, of communicating quality uh, and that basically is classifying the vineyards and then the, the wine must be of a, a high enough quality and it's assessed every vintage. Am I getting that right? That's pretty much correct. Don't please make me to explain the whole German uh, classification system because then I would probably, uh, we need another 24 hours to do this. Germany, we like to be complicated. No, no offense, but I think the listeners will probably be long asleep. <laughs> okay. Uh, but to make it very short, in earlier times, um, the quality of a wine in Germany has been guided by the amount of sugar that it has crea been created, which in the early years, like the 70s, it definitely makes sense. But now, as the knowledge about winemaking rose, and for example, the yields have been tr dramatically reduced during the last years, and also climate change maybe play a little bit of, of role in it, I don't believe that climate change will have such a big effect on our wines as everybody's uh, thinking about. But still, we, we get longer ripening periods. We get tendency to a little bit warmer weather. So actually, ripeness of grapes is not telling you much about quality anymore. So what is happening within the VDP? And actually, um, there were some guys in Germany that, that basically started this idea, like uh, Bernhard Breuer and also my father, uh, they started to discuss that actually quality should be guided by the piece of land where the, where the uh, grapes have been grown or not so much by sugar because everybody can make ripe grapes. That is not, that is not your job, uh, not a special job. To be a special winemaker, you have to have a very good piece of land, a very good vineyard, but also you have to understand how to work with this vineyard. And the theory is that the smaller piece of land is, the more distinct wine will taste and so for us burgundy to explain this has a, the best uh, classification system so pretty much we adopted the burgundian classification system into our uh, our uh, our uh, own country and now the dry wines are pretty much we have the uh, orts, uh, the estate wine Uh, then we have the Orts wine, which is similar like a village quality, and then we have the GG wine, the Großes Gewächs, or it's a similar to the Grand Cru idea. Um, we have the three-tier system, and for me, this is how you explain quality. It's all about the piece of land. Of course, for the sweeter wines, we keep the predicate system, how the old system is called, because it explains you about the sweetness of a wine, and there this perfectly makes sense but for the dry wines we just classify over vineyard sites so what's the actual process of um them like how, how many times is so there's 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 a governing body who um decide whether a wine is can, can be classified as a courses givex or in it's a erstes givex in uh in the rheingau um How many times during the, the harvest or post-harvest would they actually come to sort of assess the wines? Actually, to in our region, the wines are called a Großes Gewächs. In the Rheingau, they call it an Erstes Gewächs. We are trying to harmonize um, this during the next couple of years. But for now, this is um, how it is. Um, to 
call your wine a großes Gewächs at the end, you have to actually undergo a couple of, of steps um, that you have to fulfill um, until you're allowed to call it this way. Um, first, you have to be a VDP member, which uh, is, as I said earlier, 200 uh, wineries out of 20,000 in Germany are VDP members, which is like the, how do you call this, a quality peer group of wineries in Germany. Has, uh, our winery actually has been a founding member and for the last 122 years being in this um, in the VDP and uh, you cannot join the VDP you have to be invited by uh, creating some awareness of, of that you create outstanding wines and then you get invited invited to join the VDP so it's actually a quite small group and but people also drop out of the VDP if they don't meet the quality criteria and but some new really good wine wineries are invited to join so it's, it's actually to to be in there it's it's not like a you, you don't it's not inherited you have to prove every year that you are a, a deserving member of this and then also your vineyard has to be classified as a gg vineyard um, so uh, when you of course we have very traditional vineyard sites in our area we have the rotenberg we have the patenthal and the hipping which are all three quite renowned vineyard sites but if you for example have a really uh, cool vineyard site that hasn't been acknowledged as a, v, uh, as a GG yet, you have to prove in a 10 years vertical tasting that this uh, vineyard actually over 10 consecutive years produced outstanding quality in Germany and then... Uh, 10 years, that's like, that. I mean, even just like to be, um, to qualify for biodynamic is four years and organic yeah. is three years, so 10 years, that's a pretty serious yeah. investment to, to sort of, to show the, yeah, the consistent quality of, of, a, of a vineyard. Yeah. But as, as we said, talked about earlier, vineyards are the places where the wines are made, not the cellars. So we have to have the base of really great vineyard sites to to feed this idea of a, a vineyard-orientated classification system. So this is all um, what can make a difference. And if your vineyard is approved to create as a große Lager, which is uh, like the, uh, the best vineyard sites, um, then every year, every single year, Uh, the wines are tasted in a taste, testi tasting panel and they have to pass the tasting panel. So you have actually undergo three quality criterias to be able to call your wines a GG's. And wines get rejected quite uh, regularly. So not not just because you're a VDP member and you have a, a wine that is uh, a vineyard that is classified as a, a große Lager doesn't make you sure that you can produce a GG wine every year. So it's actually... Uh, quite intense testing going on until you are finally allowed to call your vineyard a GG. Um, now, your so your sister, when did she uh, end up sort of stepping away and, and relocating to Austria? So it was pretty much uh, vintage 2010. She she had her boyfriend for a longer time, and she has been visiting him and helping him also making wines for quite some time. But pretty much the decision that she moved to Austria has been made in 2010, uh, which was pretty amazing uh, stressful t uh, challenging vintage in, in Germany and that was the time when I just ha had to jump into the cold water but still having my my sister in Austria is for me an amazing asset in my uh, voyage uh, to really becoming and, and in increasing my skills as a winemaker because we stay in a very tight relationship and I think the, the uh, telecommunication agency, they build a new landline just for the two of us uh, to have the communication between Germany and Austria because the first winter, uh, like really we have been on the phone uh, 24 hours and yeah, just because of, like her knowledge in winemaking 
and they are very much connected. Um, they are a couple of steps ahead of me, to put it this way, how they uh, can create their wines. And um, yeah, so for me, this having, having this connection and, and exchanging ideas and, and talking about uh, philosophies of winemaking is, is quite important. So that collaborative um, relationship that you have uh, and working so closely um, with your sister kind of led you to come up with the, the, this project, which I think, if I remember correctly, was something that you were starting when I was working vintage in 2012. And yeah. so I feel, you know, kind of a bit of pride in, uh, <laughs> in being part of that initial project. And I know I, I'm, I, from memory, what, what we were doing was kind of a secret. It definitely was a secret. And it's actually a, a very geeky project which arose a lot of uh, attention in, in the European wine sector. We actually will be showing it today at, um, at the Single Side Symposium from Sellerhand. And actually there are some, some boxes of this project available here in, um, in Australia. It's, it's a quite complex thing, so I'm, I can introduce it a little bit, but uh, check out www wurzelwerk.org uh, don't, don't worry I'll, I'll make sure to put the link <laughs> okay and there we go a lot of, about this technical stuff but the idea of it was actually you know my sister her husband me and then another quite famous winemaker Max von Kuno from the von Hövel estate at the Mosel we are in the pretty same uh, situation coming home into a very traditional winery a family winery after we have been traveling the world and, and working in different places. Some some of us outside the wine industry, some of us inside the wine industry, and we had a lot of stupid questions. And our parents didn't want to ask uh, um, answer the question, or maybe they couldn't. And it was all about how we can understand our vineyard side. So we we came home and we know we had this really amazing vineyards in our hand, and they have been producing wines for centuries. And we wanted to find out what is like how can we what is special about our vineyards and where is our position as a as a person as a winemaker in this uh, should we interpret this vineyard sites or should we leave them alone and so like because our parents they they, they have been doing the job for so long they they couldn't answer the question to us so we we, we basically joined forces and it was during a, a holiday just before harvest when we visited um, the vineyard in the Kamtal area of my sister and husband that we were walking around the vineyard sites the grapes were just starting to get ripe and we tasted vineyards that's what winemakers do they, they don't go holidays to the Bahamas or to some nice beaches they, they go and visit other vineyards well that's what I did for 16 months <laughs> I went around the world visiting wineries yeah so we, we started tasting grapes and, and starting discussion so what you're looking for how do you make your picking decision and what do you think it will taste in another two weeks and and then uh, Stephanie asked me, so Johannes, how are your grapes tasting right now? Do they, are they getting to there how they know him? And, and I said, you know what, I, I will send you um, a bag of grapes when I get home because I cannot describe the taste. And then wheels started to turn in our heads. My sister said, and actually, you know what, you're not going to sell me, send me a, a, a bag, a Ziploc bag. You will send me a whole box of 500 kilograms. And then I will make wine out of it. And, and I want to have some piece of my home in my cellar. And I said, okay, actually quite good idea. And then we took also Max in, uh, in, into the process. And uh, it was like a beer idea or schnapps idea, as we say in Germany. We, we started uh, having like uh, some beers over dinner and, and start discussion. And at this point, we didn't know what 
what big wheels we're starting to turn. But at the end, the idea was that everybody picks 1,500 kilograms from his best vineyard sites, splits it in three, and sends it to the other two people. So three times three is nine. So each of us at the end had three different lots from three different vineyard sites in his own cellar. And we wanted to find out the similarities and the differences if these grapes are getting fermented in all the three different uh, in all the three different uh, cellars. And the idea was to be very um, comparable. So we wanted to exclude everything else than the vineyard side. The first idea was maybe pretty quite naive because I said, like a grape is a physical product. It has sugar. It has acidity. It has a skin. So technically, our ideas were they should pretty much taste the same when we when we ferment them in the different places. But at the end, we saw there are so many factors that are influencing this the wines, uh, and it's so many small details that you have to pay attention to. Uh, that it really we are when we started this thing, we we are actually looking for answers to our questions. What we got was much more questions, but at the end, the questions are the motivating and encouraging stuff because winemaking is not like I said like you can wine learn winemaking from books or you can wi learn winemaking from a teacher but I think to really understand winemaking you have to understand much more than that and and I really hope that you never will get like if I get a formula which tells me you you do this and you do that then you do that and then at the end it will taste like this it would probably be not so interesting for me than it than it's now because the uh, process of the fermentation where you have the grape juice which has been identical in the different wineries and then you have the finished project the step in between the fermentation is like a magical or an alchemistic uh, thing happening nobody can really un explain it because the three wines they had a, a big differences of course they had the connection the wines from the Mosul in all three different cellars that we've fermented in had the taste like the really piercing acidity but between this physical dimension there was so much interesting stuff happening that it's actually like it it arose so many questions in our heads and it really makes made us to investigate how we can create circumstances to guide our wines without actually putting our hands in there so it's a very much we we are very interested about this old technologies that have been used in our cellars like 100 years ago when the people thought they were doing things doing some voodoo magic where people think like uh, you know the anthroposophical approaches to winemaking biodynamics and all that everybody thought that it's, it's like a witchcraft or something but now I think you understand much more how it can influence that and and uh, like the small details that you are attentive to can really have a big effect on your wines and at the end we never planned to make something that we can sell out of it it was really like for our own practice at home um, the project was so fascinating to ourselves that we are actually making it available now so the set is just available as a nine wines ferment like the three win vineyards fermented in three different cellars and this is from the 2012 vintage we have uh, 2012 available in australia here over cellar hand but um, 2013 is on the way 2014 as well and we want to um, every year investigate other aspects of the winemaking process and what it is at the end we call it it's a it's a drinking game for wine geeks because you don't open up a bottle each evening it doesn't give you the experience you need to gather a group of maybe 13 people and sit at the table open the nine bottles and i guarantee you you have a great evening on discussing about wine and 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 just like open you 
complete new ideas how you can understand vineyard sites and it's amazing time you need around the shortest time we ever had was three and a half hours we we had it for eight hours as well so take some time when you open this box but i guarantee you it's definitely worth it well certainly um i, I know one of uh, my good friends uh, mark at milton he's uh, he's got um, a couple of boxes so uh jump on that but uh if you are interested in in sort of finding out how the the origin or the you know how the the project first started um, you can actually, on my blog, on my website, um, read my impressions of what we were doing, you know, and it was pretty exciting. I remember how excited you were to be when we had that beautiful Georgian amphora delivered to the winery. And, and you know, um, so if you do taste that 2012, you may taste a little bit of me in there because I jumped into a bin of grapes <laughs> and was... Uh, Squashing them by foot. I hope foot. you washed your feet before that. Of course, of course, you know. That, but that's but that's that's the that's the terroir, as the French call it. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I'm I'm actually interested because I haven't actually tried the wine yet. So I'm hoping we we can have a taste of it uh, a little bit later. But um, it's an exciting project, and uh, you know, I know that. Um, some of the things that are happening at Gundalok uh, for, the, for the other wines is, is exciting as well. Um, and yeah, if you do get out there and you see Gundalok wine, probably one of the, the one of the easiest ones to access would be the Fritz's Riesling, which obviously was named after your father. Um, but but the, the Gundalok wines all across the board are exceptional. Um, if you can find a bottle of the the Tochlenbiernaslis, the TBA, you you must buy that. Uh, that's one of the only wines I think that got uh, 100 points from uh, Wine Spectator for three different vintages. It was the only wine in the world that did this actually up until now. So there are a couple of hundred wine, wines uh from the wine spectator around, but the Bortenbeck uh, TBA is the only one that achieved this on a, in three different vineyards, a uh, vintage. But um, definitely uh, head to uh, to the gundalock.de, I think, is it? Yep. That's, That's the right. website. Um, are you, are you, is Gundalock on uh, any form of social media? Uh, we have a Facebook page, which you are happy to join. You get some live snapshots out of the vineyards during harvesting and some first tasting impressions right out of the barrel. And we inform you about what voyages we are going on to and where you can find our wines fantastic well thank you so much it's uh, obviously it's great to catch up with you um and i, I appreciate you making some time uh, whilst you're obviously um got a bit of a travel bug as well but um i, I look forward to trying more of the gundalock wines and um i urge everyone listening to uh, to seek them out as well all right thank you james for the interview i hope you enjoyed it as well and looking forward to taste some wines for you, with you this afternoon thanks very much and as always, thank you very much for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Um, I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast, which is where you'll be able to find out when all the new episodes go up. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. Uh, and come and visit me at my website, intrepidwino.com, which is where you can find all of the previous episodes of the podcast as well as lots of different writings about my experiences and travels. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM um, and that's really fantastic because you can download the episode as soon as it comes uh, available online and you can listen to your the podcast episodes on your iPhone or Android or even an MP3 player. Uh, if you 
you do subscribe on either of those platforms, I uh, would request that you rate and review. Please, five stars would be fantastic and write something nice about uh, an episode you enjoyed or a guest that I had uh, because it really does help me out and helps to grow the podcast. Uh, I look forward to um, you listening to future episodes. Got some great guests coming up. But until next time, bye.